title today's message, Comfort in Darkness. Comfort in Darkness. Today's psalm is considered by many scholars to have the same setting as Psalm 3, and is to be the evening psalm paired with Psalm 3, which is to be the morning reading. Remember the context of Psalm 3, David's son Absalom and his violent rebellion, and then David's cry to God for deliverance in the face of this unspeakably agonizing grief. That's our context. Now let's remember what was said in Psalm 3. It's short enough we can read the whole thing, so I'll read it and hopefully you can access it as well. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. With reference to these uh, morning and evening components, uh, in Psalm 3, it says, I laid down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. He's speaking as one who has woken up. So he's referencing the sleep that he just had. Last week, I didn't really uh, point out that uh, component of it. I just talked about the Lord giving rest. But the um, way in which it's phrased indicates that he is waking up from his night's sleep. So this is uh, a, a psalm for the morning. In today's text, in Psalm 4, he says, in verse 4 and verse 8, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed. So you're laying down in bed and thinking thoughts as you lay there. Verse 8 says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So these are the reasons why we think that verse 3 is referring to a morning psalm, something to be read or prayed upon waking up. And then Psalm 4 is to be read or prayed at the end of the day. Now, um, notice as well how this poem written for the chief musician or music director by King David, shows this great contrast to the previous psalm. So you have the king of Israel, King David, who has written a song for the music director. People say, well, where's the biblical grounds for a music director? Well, here would be one example. Um, So you've got somebody who is the the song leader, and then the king is writing a a song or a poem for the song leader to set to music so that the people can then sing And it is showing quite a contrast from Psalm 3. So here are some things to consider to compare Psalm verse 1 of Psalm 3 to verse 1 of Psalm 4. By the way, I am terrified that I'm going to get these horribly jumbled up in my words this morning between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. It happened multiple times as I was preparing the the sermon. I kept looking over it at Psalm 3 instead of Psalm 4 and then making my points be matching Psalm 3 instead of Psalm 4. So if I say the wrong thing, just bear with me and scroll back up to Psalm 3 and see if it makes a little more sense. But hopefully we are still on track right now. I will also tell you, and I once once we hit point number one, but we're not at point one yet. So compare verse 1 of Psalm 3 to verse 1 of Psalm 4. 
chapter Psalm 3, 1 says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, hear me when I call, O God of my righteous. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Notice the contrast there. The beginning of the day, he's crying out about all these enemies that have risen up against him. But at the end of the day, he is thanking God for his answer to prayer. He's saying, you have relieved me in my distress. So, we have five words of comfort in darkness to remember from this passage. Point number one, we have slides for these. Number one, find comfort that God hears your prayer. Find comfort that God hears your prayer. By the way, if you're taking notes, you can just write find comfort at the top. And then under that, you have point one, God hears your prayer. Verses one and three B. Verse one says, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Verse three B says, the Lord will hear when I call to him. By the way, by, by way of structure this morning, this is not so much a one, two, three, four structure as it is verse one and three B, and then point two is three A, and then point three is verse one and five, and then verse four is verse six. And so it's, it's not as sequential in its um, explanation, but rather is more thematic in observing common themes in certain verses and then pulling them together. So this is also why we have slides to help keep things a little more clear for you, even if it is not clear for me as I'm trying to deliver it. So number one, find comfort that God hears your prayer. It has been said that the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. That's a helpful thing to think about as you're reading through the Psalms. These are not just songs, but they are prayers. And every experience of the Christian life is addressed in the pages of this book of poetry. This is why you find the full range of human experience and human emotions within these pages. What we're mentioning today, though, is both the experience of suffering and crying out to God in the face of that suffering and the answer from God in that time of suffering. So number one, find comfort that God hears your prayer. He says, you have relieved me in my distress. As we already mentioned, uh, verse One of chapter three, he's saying, how many are my foes? I'm surrounded by these enemies. And in the heading, we know that those are the enemies that his son, Absalom, have led in rebellion against him, threatening his life. He's fleeing for his life. And so he cries out to God in Psalm three for rescue, for deliverance, for help. And then in Psalm four, he says, you have answered me. You have relieved me. So find comfort that God hears your prayer. Uh, One helpful um, children's church, Sunday school type uh, idea to keep in mind is that the Lord hears our prayers and he answers our prayers, but his answers are not always yes. They are sometimes yes, but sometimes no. And then other times they're wait. But the Lord hears your prayers. I wonder if if I really recognize and really allow that to change the way I thought that the Lord hears every one of my prayers, would I not pray more? Maybe it just so happens to be that God does hear every single prayer and answer every single prayer. I just don't pray that much. I don't know. I suspect it might be true of some of you as well. But we should see this and find comfort to pray, knowing that God hears our prayers. 
He does, in fact, hear our prayers, even when we might not feel like he hears our prayers. The Lord actually answers our prayers at times in ways which we don't see, we don't understand. Think about praying for the salvation of a loved one. They might be saved much later on after you are uh, no longer around them. Uh, Maybe it is a, a parent praying for their child's salvation. Well, the Lord may perhaps save them after you're dead and gone. There's a story from a a Puritan preacher named John Flavel, who, and by the way, it's Flavel, not Flavel. Um, John Flavel, uh, someone was saved, I think, 60 or 70 years after they heard him preach a sermon. Uh, It was this really aggressive, not very nice person, heard him preach, mocked him, made fun of him, went away from that sermon, still cold, dead in their sins and rejecting everything that he said. And then, you know, John Flavel goes on to die and be with the Lord. And then uh, decades pass and this angry, ornery old man is laying there on his deathbed, you know, maybe 60, 70 years later. And the thought of that sermon that he heard all those years earlier comes back into his mind. And the Lord uses that to save him on his deathbed. Now, no doubt there were people praying for him as well. So when we think of uh, prayers, we often think in the, the here and now, the right now. God, here's my need. I need you to answer this prayer in the next five seconds or else you don't love me and you don't hear my prayers. That is very short-sighted. Recognize that the Lord is working in a million different ways all at the same time. The image of the um, very fancy rug is helpful for the Christian to keep in mind. If you've ever seen tapestries or rugs and you flip it over and you see uh, all kinds of string going many different directions, but then you flip it back right side up and you see a beautiful picture. Well, the Christian's life, you read Providence in reverse. You look back and see what happened and that's how you understand it. You can't read it uh, looking forward. You don't know what's what the meaning of different seemingly insignificant events, uh, what that meaning is. But uh, when it is all said and done, it's like the backside of that rug that you look at, and then you flip over to the front and you see, oh, this is what was going on. So it is with our lives, and so it is even with our prayers, where we don't know how the Lord is going to use a prayer that we pray here to be answered at a later point and time, or even in a way in which we did not expect So number one, find comfort that God hears your prayer. Number two, find comfort that you are chosen by God. Verse 3a. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. Know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. I believe in the ESV it says God has set the the godly apart for himself or something like that. The the word order is a little bit clearer, a little bit more helpful. Um, If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because God has chosen you to be a Christian. God has ordained it before the foundation of the world. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Uh, I have an an image called, um, I don't remember the title, but it's it's Lapsarian Views. Uh, This chart shows the order of decrees or the order in which God has ordained certain things to come to pass. And when we say lapsarian views, we mean order of the fall and election and creation and and what that proper sequence is. The Bible is very clear that God has chosen people to be saved before he made the world. So before he started the board game, he established what was going to happen. 
he also picked his team. He picked the people that he wanted. Now, you might object to that. You might say, well, that's not fair. Well, the Bible answers that as well. And it says, who are you to answer back to God? If you find that concerning or find that troubling, your response should not be so much as whether or not that is fair, but what are you doing with Jesus right now? What is your response to him? And if you have a problem with the possibility of being left out of team Jesus, well, let, let that serve as a motivation to get on team Jesus. Because if you want to receive him, if you want to come to Christ, if you want to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus as your savior, you can rest assured that no one who has ever looked to him who has ever been turned away. There's never been someone who came to Christ who was rejected. So if you find this concept of election concerning or predestination or being chosen by God and whether or not you are chosen, your focus is on the wrong thing. Your focus should not be on trying to determine whether or not you are elect, but to determine whether or not Jesus is a sufficient Savior. And let me assure you that he is. He is able to save to the uttermost all who would draw near to him. In other words, he is able to save you. He's able to save anyone. So, what we will see, as I referenced earlier with the uh, rug or the tapestry imagery, when we look back on time after it's all over with, we will then see the fuller picture, which we don't see right now. But today's message is comfort in darkness, comfort for the Christian. And so for the Christian, you can find comfort that you are chosen by God. Now, I've already said you shouldn't worry about figuring out if you're elect or not. That is partially true, but there's also an element in which you can know whether you're elect or not. And that's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that you, can, that you know that you are chosen by God because the word of God has come to you. So you heard the gospel. But he doesn't stop there. He goes further and he says, not just the word of God, but it came with full power and conviction of the Holy Spirit. So it actually was effective to draw you to to himself. It convicted you of your sin and drew you savingly to himself. And so because those things happened, you can know that you were chosen by God. Not everybody who hears the word of God is chosen by God. Not everybody who hears the preached word or proclaimed word is is elect, which is why it says not only that the word of God came to you, but that it came with full power and conviction of the Holy Spirit. So that's the difference between the general call and the effectual or effective call. The general call is the, the gospel preached widely to as many people as possible. Like this right now, proclaiming the gospel that Jesus died for sinners. And if you believe on him, you can be saved. You can believe that Jesus died for you as a substitute, as a sin bearer, representing you. Sort of like a defense attorney. He'll stand on your behalf and plead not your righteousness, but his own and say, no, I've paid his penalty. Therefore, he can go free. And you believe that, and then you're set free. You have life. You're forgiven. That's the general call. The effectual call is when that general call takes root in your heart. When it it causes you to be born again, it causes the lights to turn on. That's the difference between the general call and the effectual call. You can find comfort in times of darkness and difficulty, even lying on your bed at night, finding comfort that you were chosen by God. 
when your world is turned upside down, when your son is throwing a rebellion against you, when he is leading armies to take over your kingdom, you can remember that God has set apart the godly for himself. He did not set you apart because you were godly, though, but rather you were godly because he set you apart. Not only does the Lord set you apart for himself, which is the very essence of being chosen by God, is that he has selected you. But because he's selected you, because he has chosen you, he will hear you when you call to him. Number three, find comfort that God is your salvation. Find comfort that God is your salvation. Verse 1 and verse 5. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Not only are these words words of answer to prayer, which they are, but they're words of salvation. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that there, there is a crying out in salvation. There is a reaching out and saying, save me. Now, don't worry. I still believe in regeneration, preceding faith, and all of those things. But that's kind of a matter of logical decree, not experience. The experience of lostness is you're lost, you recognize that you're lost, you cry out for help, and then you're saved. Now, we recognize that the reason any of that happens is because he chose you first, and then he, through the preached word, caused you to be born again, and then you cried out to him, and then you were converted, and all all of those things. We recognize that. But the experience is you recognize your lostness, then you cry out to him, and you say, help, save me. So in verse 1, hear me when I call. The sinner cries out to God because he recognizes that God is his only hope of salvation. God is the one who is able to relieve him in his distress. God is the one who is able to have mercy on him and able to hear. The first thing that I want to observe as a subpoint under this is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Find comfort that God is your salvation. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. O God of my righteousness. If you recall from last week, um, the situation with Absalom developed because of David's unrighteousness, because of David's sin. Specifically, um, well, this sin with Bathsheba, which a billion blog articles are like, this is rape. Others are like, this is not rape. And this is like, is it rape or is it not rape? We're not sure. I'm not sure. Like, you'd be a fool to not recognize a power dynamic in him calling to Bathsheba. But then at the same time, she doesn't resist in the slightest or call out for help, as is the biblical standard for uh, the difference between rape and not rape, which would be consent. And um, she doesn't seem to resist whatsoever. And then after that, you have murder, where David has her husband killed to cover up for the pregnancy that has resulted. And then the prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him and says, 
he tells this story about the guy who has the lamb, and then the other person comes and steals the lamb, and uh, then David says, that's terrible. Why would you do such a thing? That man who did that should be killed. And then Nathan says, you are the man. And then he, not, not in a nice way, you are the man, but in a negative way, uh, thou art the man, he says. And then um, he, Samuel explains a number of uh, judgments that will come upon him because of this sin. There will be this violence in his family, this division and conflict. Rebellion will rise. David has a lot of unrighteousness. And so do you. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. Well, it actually was one, but it was Jesus. You are not righteous. And so if God is to be your righteousness, if you are going to cry out with David, oh God of my righteousness, the way you're going to have righteousness is you receive it from him. It's imputed righteousness. It's alien righteousness. It's that righteousness which is credited to his account. So finding comfort that God is your salvation requires first off receiving and recognizing his imputed righteousness, which is a gift righteousness. It's not something that you earn. It's something that is freely given. Not because you deserve it. You deserve the wages of sin. Well, the wages of sin is death. But you receive freely the gift of salvation through imputed righteousness, which is this crediting to your account, this reckoning to your account, a righteousness, a perfection, which you did not earn, you did not deserve. Think of a a credit card bill. So you have a bill. You've charged up all these things. It's accumulated as the month has gone on. Only in the sin case, it's, it's your life. Every time you do something wrong, it adds up. And unlike you, God doesn't forget. God doesn't forget all of these things. The records in heaven are kept accurately. And so at the end, the end of the month, the end of the year, you look at that record of the transactions that have occurred, and you see an accurate transcript of what has actually taken place. And then what you ought to say is, oh no, I'm in trouble. Look at my debt. Look at my sin. Look at all of these charges. Well, then imagine someone comes in and pays that debt. For the few of you who still know that feeling of your parents paying your credit card bill, it's kind of like that, where you've rung up the bill, but someone else is paying the bill. Well, Jesus paid our debt. But he not only paid our debt, but he gave us his righteousness. And that is the concept of imputed righteousness. Uh, Verse 5. Verse 5 says, "Offer Offer sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. The sacrifices of righteousness immediately are referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system and these sacrifices described in Leviticus that when you do a certain sin, then you have a certain uh, sacrifice you're supposed to make to atone for that, but also recognizing that those blood sacrifices don't truly pay for those sins, but rather they are a a type of memorial or, or a type of something which is to come. This later full payment, this true sacrifice, this true lamb which will be slain, which then would be Jesus. So we have this Old Testament system, which is being referred to in the immediate context by David, speaking of the sacrifices of righteousness. But we recognize that Jesus is the true and ultimate sacrifice which is made, and that you must trust in the Lord as your righteousness. 
Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Trust and faith are one and the same. That, that is what that is. It's dependence. It's knowledge, assent, and trust. That's what faith is. It's, it's understanding it, agreeing with it, and depending on it. That's what saving faith is. So find comfort that God is your salvation. If you do not have God as your salvation, if you have resisted him, you continue to straddle the fence. You're like, ah, you know, if, I, if I become a Christian, then you know, I'm going to become one of those people. I don't want to become one of those people. I want to be cool. I want my friends not to make fun of me. If that's you, there is no comfort. There is no comfort in God that he is your salvation. And there's especially no comfort in God that he is your salvation when you are laying there on your bed at night with your head on your pillow thinking about what the future holds. Because that's our context. Our context is this comfort in darkness. The end of the day, you're thinking about the things that have happened. And I think we all probably have that experience of being left alone with our thoughts in the darkness. And for the one who is not a Christian, you don't have that comfort. You don't have that comfort that God is your salvation. So why not let today be the day that you receive him as your salvation, that you receive Christ as your imputed righteousness, that you'll have him be the one who takes your, pay, uh, takes your place, makes your payment, gives you his righteousness. If you resist that, then why? What are you resisting for? What will you find more valuable? What will you find more important? Life is short. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Our next point, point four. Find comfort that the Lord sees you. Find comfort that the Lord sees you. Verse six. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. There are many who say, who will show us any good? See, the the human life is full of these experiences of the, um, the peanut gallery, the critics, the the friends who make the negative remarks, they think they're just here to like be realistic, but in reality, they're just they're jealous. They try to tear you down. They're kind of against you, but they call themselves your friends. We, we've all experienced that. And in this text, these are the people who are saying, who will show us any good? They're, they're the, the negative folks. Well, the response to that is crying out, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Lord, look on me. See me. It's one of the loneliest feelings to feel unknown and unseen. To be suffering alone without anyone caring. But the comfort here in verse or point four is to find comfort in this time of darkness that the Lord sees you. So you are in a difficult situation, let's suppose, or next time you're in a difficult situation, recognize the Lord sees you. He knows what you're going through. Whether this is uh, something super, super bad, like what David and Absalom, uh, the situation with David and Absalom, 
His son has rebelled against him, trying to overthrow the kingdom. So I spoke last week of the, uh, the concept of family problems. The Lord knows, the Lord sees, the Lord understands. Or whether it's something less than that. If he sees and knows and cares about something so extreme, then how much more does he care for the small things? We see that throughout the New Testament and Jesus speaking about caring. If he cares for the, the lilies and the sparrows, then he cares for you. He sees you. He knows. So we can find comfort that the Lord sees you in your distress, in your heartache. Whether that is something very large and significant, something very great, or whether that is something seemingly small and insignificant, the Lord knows. But David has cried out, lift up your countenance upon us. The word countenance, I'm not sure what ESV says, says, but countenance just means face. Your face. Look upon me. See me. There's something incredibly comforting and encouraging to be seen, to be recognized, to be acknowledged. When you're crying out for help, the most uh, disturbing and distressing thing in that experience is to be ignored. I mean, even in non-problematic situations, suppose you're like in class and you've got a teacher and your teacher is going on and on and on and you're like, I don't understand. So you stick your hand up and you want to ask a question and the teacher just ignores you and keeps on going and going and going. Meanwhile, you're like being eaten up on the inside with your, your distress, your problem, which is, I don't understand what we were talking about 25 minutes ago, which is why I've had my hand raised for the last 25 minutes. And so you are incredibly... uh disturbed by the fact that you are being ignored. Being ignored is, is up there, like top three most unpleasant experiences. But the Lord sees you when you feel that. The Lord sees you when you feel like you are unseen or ignored or not known. The Old Testament is full of illustrations of this, whether it is... Um, Elijah at the river, and the, he's, he's so upset that um, he prays that the Lord would just kill him. But the Lord sees him, takes pity on him, compassion on him, and he sends the raven to feed him. The Lord knows and sees his people, and he cares for them. Point five. Remember that the Lord gives peace and joy. The Lord gives peace and joy. Verse 7 says, You have put gladness in my heart, more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We're going to talk about um, joy first, because that's what comes first in verse 7. You've put gladness in my heart. True joy comes from the Lord. It's, it's more than just having a positive personality. Though having a positive personality is a very godly thing. It's wonderful. But joy is more than that. It's more than just being an optimist, being a half glass, half full kind of person. Joy is, is this God-given perspective. It's a frame of mind. It's an attitude. It's a disposition. We know that this comes from the Lord because the New Testament teaches us that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. For a Christian to have joy 
is the most biblical thing. It is a right thing. Verse 7 says, you have put gladness in my heart. This fruit of the Spirit, it's the Spirit's fruit. It's what God cultivates in us. God gives us this joy, this gladness, this happiness. And he gives it to us even in times when our circumstances aren't so good. Now, there, are, there is a temptation for the Christian to lie and to say that things are good when things are not good. When, to say that things feel good when they do not feel good. Sometimes as a pastor, I try and make my way around and greet people and ask them, how are you? And they say, good. And I know they're lying. Things are not good. It would be better to say, I'm struggling. It's been a hard week. Everything in my life turned upside down. I have problems. Some version of that. You, you, you don't, you're not better because you're lying about things. And saying, oh, everything is great. And then your family knows how things really are. But the Lord does truly give joy even in hard circumstances. Verse 7 says, you put gladness in my heart. This gladness that David is speaking of comes from God. Because naturally, his human experience would not have that. He would be in extreme distress as he was in the previous psalm because his situation was bad. There's a book that I bought a number of months ago. It's a very, very long title, a Puritan length title. The title is something like, have you ever wondered what's normal? What's normal is when your circumstances, when your emotions match the circumstances. All of that on the front cover, you're just like, whoa. It's, it's kind of a book about brain, your brain, like uh, psychology and stuff. Like, is it normal for me to be feeling the way I'm feeling right now? You know, you're, you're, you missed your train by two seconds and you're absolutely having a meltdown. Well, no, that's not normal because this is not a big deal. There'll be another train in two minutes. That's not healthy. And that's, a, that's a problem and you need to deal with that. But it is normal to be sad when a loved one dies. Because that is a big deal. And it's appropriate to have a larger response to something that is more significant. But this joy from the Lord is is able to be given and able to be received even in the middle of heart-rending, heartbreaking circumstances. Not in a fake Christianese way. Y'all know I despise Christianese. You know, it's the, the, the words that people say Oh, I'm, how are you? I'm blessed. Praise the Lord. Meanwhile, everything is upside down and your family knows that that's not really what you're actually thinking because then you're going home and treating them terribly. But then at church or Bible study or small group, you're acting all fake and happy. That's what I mean when I say Christianese. Because to me, it's also tied to the church split. And in the church split, every single devilish email was signed with the most false praise a well-wisher of your souls, dear brother. Literally every single letter that was, that was sent, that was jam-packed full of lies, had that type of language at the beginning and at the end of it. I'm just tired of it. The Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Something in the Proverbs about it's better to be cursed to your face than to be lied about. Um, 
Nevertheless, the Lord does give genuine joy. So don't feel bad if you feel good in the middle of hardship because the Lord has given you joy. There there are times when those things happen where your heart is being ripped in two, but you feel the presence of Christ in the middle of that. And you can acknowledge that without being deceitful or deceptive. You can acknowledge like, no, this is hard. And you're like wiping tears out of your eyes, but you're not in despair. That also can happen. But regardless of this, it's okay to just acknowledge what you're feeling and experiencing in this genuinely bad circumstance. The Lord gives joy. You don't have to be controlled by your circumstances. You don't have to be controlled by other people. And one of the things that my dad would always say to me, he said, Andy, don't let those who are out of control control you. I should probably write that on a sticky note and stick it on my mirror and think about it every single day because there have been great years of my life that have been controlled by people who are out of control. You do not have to let other people's attitudes or actions control your attitudes and actions. You can have joy even when other people don't. Now, you might need to be Careful how you wield that joy so that you don't find yourself being even more mistreated by these people who are not happy until you're not happy. But if the Lord has given you very graciously, sovereignly given you supernatural joy in the middle of hardship, uh, rejoice about that joy. Find thankfulness and praise for God in the middle of that situation that he has comforted you. Like a father coming alongside of their child who just got kicked in the face with a soccer ball and their nose is bleeding. And, you know, they came off the field and they're crying, but they're trying to keep it together. And they're like, you know, trying to trying to hold it in. Their dad comes over and puts his arm around him and says, it's all right. You did a good job. I'm proud of you. Uh, After joy, then we have peace. Verse eight. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It is um, somewhere between difficult and impossible to sleep when you don't feel safe. Um, I had a friend who I hadn't seen. Some of you know him, but um, I haven't seen him in about a year who dropped by our apartment yesterday uh, about 11 a.m. And um, the doorman was like, yeah, he doesn't look so good. And I was out with the Love Life sidewalk team. And just like, I got a phone call. Hey, I need to go home because so-and-so is here. Like literally the day before I spent between 30 minutes an hour Googling because I'm confident the guy's dead. I haven't heard from him in forever. And every several months, I'll just do a deep dive on all the databases that I know about looking to see when he died, how he died, what happened. Because of the 25 phone numbers I have for him, none of them are working. Um, Like his own people have called me asking where he is. And I've just, I don't know what to say. So the fact that he showed up at my door yesterday and did not look good was, was something that 
Um, like, all right, we're going to drop everything and not go to the bathroom right now. Like I was walking into Starbucks to use the restrooms. Like, actually, I need to go home immediately. So turned around, ran to the train, got on the train. Then the train stopped, sat there for seven minutes, then moved on. We get back. I get back to my place and I see him and he looks awful. He's lost like 40 pounds. He's skinny to begin with, but lost 40 pounds. And now the skin and bones says he hasn't eaten in four days or slept in four days. But in the hospital, doesn't feel well. Heart is barely functioning. He said it was at 2%. Now it's up to 15%. So it comes upstairs and give him some of those premier protein shakes for those who have seen inside my fridge, that whole top shelf full of those. So he, he drinks two of them right then. It's up to 60 grams of protein. We need 180 to be at the proper amount. So just uh, four more and we'll, we'll be there. And um, has half a, half a slice of pizza. And then says he's feeling kind of full and uh, asks if he can stretch out on the couch and take a nap. I said, sure. So he did. And he slept. I felt bad because I needed to wake him up to go see my friend Matt because I could visiting my friend Matt on a regular basis these days. I'm like, Matt, I got a friend who needs, can you pray with, pray with Tim? But nevertheless, my friend is sleeping there on my couch for the first time in four days, sleeping securely. Why? Well, because he feels safe in that setting. There's all kinds of, you know, research and science and data and all this stuff about the importance of feeling safe. And then if you don't feel safe, your body is not going to function the way it's supposed to function. So like women with um, issues related to fertility, like that, there's something there. Um, pregnancy, the timing of birth, um, all these kinds of things, it's all tied together with being in unsafe situations. And sleep is the thing tied here, the thing referenced in this text The reason why he's able to lie down in peace and sleep is because you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, I keep referencing it, but this situation in Psalm 4 is not necessarily an improvement on the circumstances. He's probably on the run. He's probably in a cave or sleeping under a tree or behind a bush or something like that. He's still in danger, but... Because he has cried out to God, because he has raised his voice to the Lord, confessed his problems to him, acknowledged these burdens, given them to the Lord, then he has peace. He has peace because he has uh, acknowledged these problems to the Lord. And even for, for that night alone, the Lord gives him safety. The Lord gives him safety, and so he is able to sleep. Um, these things are tied together. Having um, peace and joy, it's very difficult to have joy if you don't have peace. Um, I, would, I would even say that peace is necessary for joy. Um, you can't really have joy in war. Um, comment on the verse 7 from the footnotes of my notes. Uh, gladness in my heart. Verse 7 says, You have put more gladness in my heart, uh, more than the season 
that their grain and wine increased. So this is more gladness than in times of great prosperity. Now, most of us aren't really farmers necessarily, but some of us know the feeling of getting a bonus at work. So you get a bonus at work, and what do you do? Well, I don't know what you do, but the people that I knew who got bonuses, and when I'm hanging around them at bonus time, they would take themselves out for a nice dinner because they got their bonus. So, you know, let's say you get a $20,000, $40,000 bonus, so you go eat a dinner that's a little bit nicer. I think Warren Buffett, on days that the stocks are up, he gets like a McDonald's sandwich and a, and a coffee. But on days when the stocks are down, he just gets the sandwich and no coffee. True story. It's a, it's a YouTube thing. Have you heard of this? Yeah. <laughs> he still drives his like 1994 uh, car and lives in the same house he's always lived in. But yeah, so we, we don't really know the feeling of being farmers, but we do. some of us know the feeling of getting a bonus at work and then taking yourself out for a nice dinner to celebrate because you're glad things went well. A long, difficult season had a positive outcome, and so you took yourself out to celebrate. Maybe some friends went as well. Maybe the coworkers. I don't know. You, you get, got together with some friends for a nice dinner to celebrate. Or maybe let's say your line of work doesn't have bonuses, uh, but maybe you are a business owner, and so think of a time when your business was doing really well. Or um, more simply and more directly from our text, just imagine a time where you, you were invited to a really good meal. You were invited to a really great feast. Wine and grain abounding is what our text speaks of, and that points to feasting and material prosperity. I think the best... Um, the best meal I've ever had was at um, the Union League Club. That's my friend whose name has already been mentioned once today. Uh, he invited me to this, uh, it's like an all-you-can-eat seafood buffet. We're talking like shrimps that are this big, lobster, crabs, um, all kinds of like really amazing things. I have no idea how much this costs. I did not pay for it. I'm sure it was expensed uh, by his organization. And... Um, yeah, I mean, like you could get a, a lobster roll. You could get 10 lobster rolls. You know, around here, it's like 30 bucks for a little tiny hot dog bun-sized lobster roll. Um, they just had them there, like coming out, coming out of the kitchen like they were unlimited. The, the crab claws were like huge. It was, it was something. Now, every time I go back to the Union League Club, I'm like, wait, is it, is it the seafood day? And it's sometimes not. Usually it's not. But that great feast... I'm sitting there with like three other pastors and we're just like shocked at the extravagance of what has been laid out before us. And we don't even want to guess how much it costs per person to put this thing on. But what happens now? Well, now it's been, oh, I don't know, four or five months since that took place. And I see that one pastor and he's like, oh yeah, is your name Andy? And I'm like, yeah, I don't remember your name. And he says, yeah, well, we, we ate at that seafood buffet. And we're like, oh, that was great. We immediately, both of us, get the stupid grin on our faces again because of how positive of a memory that was. Like, that's, that's pretty high levels of, what, endorphins or dopamine hits or whatever, just remembering that positive memory. I mean, Anais and I talk about great meals that we've had in the past with great fondness. Like, oh, you remember that meal from three years ago? Like, yeah, I remember that meal. What happens? Well, it gives us great gladness. That's the imagery, that's the picture, the illustration that is used in verse 7. Verse 7 says, you have put 
gladness in my heart more than the season that their grain and wine increased. More gladness than the best feast you've ever had. That's a lot. It's possible to have that level of gladness, that level of joy. When it is from the Lord. And then another extra appendix type footnote is uh, verse eight. This peace that we have lying down in peace and sleeping for you alone. O Lord, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is faith in Christ. Confidence in the Lord allows us to sleep peacefully. Even in times of distress. So let's um, close in prayer. Lord God, we acknowledge that there are many great and extended times of darkness and difficulty in our lives. Whether they are on the more extreme and unusual end of the spectrum or the monotonous, ongoing, dull aches that don't seem to go away. Whether they are physical problems or relational problems or mental or family, financial all sorts of difficulties, and then we deal with these things in an ongoing kind of way and often find ourselves lying in bed at night with our minds occupied with these things. Help us that we would not uh, try to find the relief and satisfaction to solve these difficulties, to solve these problems, to comfort us in the types of worldly amusements which will leave us more empty than before and in more pain than before and more sorrow than before. But rather help us that we would turn to you, to cry out to you, to find our comfort in you, knowing that you hear our prayers, knowing that you are our salvation, that you've chosen us, that you see us and that you can and you do give joy and peace. Help us that we would be people who grow in our faith in you, grow in our confidence in you, growing in our trust in you. We know that you will often bring difficulties into our lives to grow us, to draw us nearer to you, for we wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have drawn closer to you if not for those hardships. So help us that we would run to you in those times instead of running away from you. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.